If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Hello all. Today we have Sonia interviewing John about the claims that Jehovah's Witnesses make about Christianity. Are they true? Have a listen and find out. We are continuing from the previous episode. We hope you enjoy. The fourth problem then, and and this is a a theological problem, if they want to translate as the word was with God and the word was a God, they don't have a problem. Well, if, if Jesus is a God, but he's not God the Father, if he's if he's not the one true God, then do we have more than one God here? Well, we must. Well, do Jehovah's Witnesses believe in just one God? Well, they say they do, because they don't believe Jesus is actually God. But then they have to explain why the Bible calls him a God if he's not God. And then they start trying to say, well, it's an honorific title. To which you ask, well, where does God ever call Another entity, God, as an honorific. Never. Wherever the one true God mentions other gods, gods of the nations, the gods of the people, they're all idols, they're all bad, they're things you stay away from. So there's really no legitimate way to get around what John chapter 1 verse 1 says about Jesus. Okay, what are the other passages that they try to use? Well, the ones we show them teach the deity of Christ and they try to get around it. We mentioned Romans 9, 5. Christ came, who is overall the eternally blessed God. Now, if you look at the New World Translation, it will say, Christ sprang according to the flesh, and then a colon. And then they'll make a new sentence. God, who is overall, be blessed. That doesn't even sound remotely like our translation. Well, yes, what they do is, we have the eternally blessed God. What they do is insert this word be, and it becomes blessed God be eternally blessed. And they say, oh, see, that's a new sentence. And where does sprang according to the flesh come from? Well, they, they use the word sprang instead of came. And there is, there is this, I've only quoted the second part of Romans 9, 5. So there's not a problem with sprang according to the flesh. The problem is that instead of the eternally blessed God describing Christ, they, as they say, they make it into second sentence with a new implied verb. Now, this is not a valid way to translate the Greek. What they're doing here is, is the, as it's written, this is attributive adjective, blessed. It's attributing this to Christ. The eternally blessed God, the eternally blessed God, it's attributing, attributing blessed to God. They want to make it pre- predicative to say, God be blessed. Which would require a different word order with the article so you can't just do that and you would you would have to put in the the article it would have to be blessed you log on tests ha theos to make it predicative instead of attributive there are three times in the new testament where we do read god god be blessed or blessed be god second corinthians 1 3 ephesians 1 3 and First Peter one three, and every time it's Eulogontes ha theos, it has the article. You need that to make it predicative. It's not there. 
So Christ came, who is overall the eternally blessed God, is the proper translation. And so Christ here is being called the eternally blessed God. Well, uh, I guess they can't have anything to say to that, can they? Well, they would probably say, oh, we'll look into it and get back to you. That They can always say that. Let's look at the next one, Titus 2.13, where we read, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's, that's what you will read in your Bible. In the New World Translation, it says, While we wait for the happy hope and glorious manifestation of the great God and of the Savior, Christ Jesus. Do you see the difference in the two? Yes, but these words, whether it God and Savior, meaning one entity or God of God and of the Savior, they here the words would have the same type of ending in the Greek. You notice there the word the, the Savior Christ Jesus. They put that there into square brackets. Why do they do that? Because it's not there in the Greek. The Greek has a very specific structure, which you have the word the, the article. You have a substantive, God. You have the connecting word kai, and. You have a second substantive, Savior. And then you have this, this noun, this nominative, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. Now, Greek grammarians studying this has found an inviolable rule where you have this construction. Okay? You have the, you have a substantive, you have and, you have a second substantive, and all of these are standing to describe a noun after it. The two substantives both describe the noun after it. So both God and Savior must be describing Christ Jesus. Yes. If you wanted to make them two separate, you would have to put in the second thought. You'd have to repeat the article. You'd have to say the great God and the Savior, Christ Jesus. And that's why you see the New World Translation has inserted it into the English. But it's not there in the Greek. It's not there in the Greek. They admit that by putting it into square brackets. But that totally changes the meaning. The grammarian Daniel Wallace, who's by the world expert on this, this rule is called the Granville Sharp rule. He did his doctorate thesis on that. Finds, I think, 80 examples of this structure in the New Testament and shows that in every single case, the two substantives are, are applied to the one noun following. So Titus 2.13 clearly says, describes Jesus Christ as our great God and Savior. So it's yet another passage showing the deity of Christ, yet another one that is mistranslated in the New World Translation to get rid of the truth that Jesus is, in fact, deity. Well, what you've shown should already be sufficient, but are there others? We mentioned Hebrews 1.8, and here's God speaking, and uh, the writer to Hebrews tells us, but to the Son, he says... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So God, the Father, is saying to the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he's describing the Son as God. He's calling him God. That would be, again, you would think that that's definitive. But if you look in the New World Translation, you read this. But with reference to the Son, God is your throne forever and ever. Is there actually a word O in the Greek here? There's no word O there. There's, there's the article. Okay. And that's their attempted justification for this, their, their translation. It becomes an utter fail, as we'll see. But 
The only way they can justify that is to say that in this verse, God has the article. So it's ha theos. And they claim that it cannot be, therefore, evocative. What is evocative, Sanya? Evocative uh, is the word form they use for a direct address. So when you're speaking to somebody. Yes. So to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's speaking to somebody. It's evocative. But in the Greek, it says, your throne, the God, is forever and ever. And they say that can't be done. Can't be done with evocative. And they're wrong on that. It is done with evocatives. Matthew eleven twenty five to 26, for example, where Jesus is clearly speaking to the Father in the evocative. We read this. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Is this clearly evocative? Yeah. Yes. If you look at the Greek, where you see in verse 26, even so, Father, you will see that it has the article there, ha pater, the Father. But it's clearly evocative. So, And the New World Translation translates it as such. So they admit that, yes, you can have the article with evocative, which means that their only reason for translating it differently, their only stated reason, is a failure. Okay, but is, is their translation really impossible, though? It's pretty much impossible when you look at this factor. This is a direct quote from the Old Testament. It's, it's a quote from Psalm 45, 6. The Septuagint of the passage, translated into Greek, is exactly the same as we see in the New Testament. It's exactly the same. And the key point is there's no question but that it is translating Psalm 45, 6, which reads in the Hebrew, Kaseda Elohim Olam Va'id. And that can only mean... It can only mean your throne, O God, is forever and ever. There's no other way to translate the Hebrew. So there it is in the Old Testament prophecy right there. And, of course, we'd also have to ask this. What would it even mean to say God is your throne? The throne is what the master sits on. It's a sign of his power. It's God throughout the Bible who sits on the throne. No one sits on him and turns God into a throne. But this shows the absurd lengths to which some people go to deny the deity of Christ. Why not just accept it? Well, could, could they ever say for any of these verses that it's just poetic or something? I don't think they can. I don't think they even, would even try to do that. The epistles are in what's called didactic format. The gospels are historical narrative. They're, they're clearly not poetry. In the Bible, we do have books of poetry. Psalms is poetry. But we don't have that in the New Testament. The, the genre are pretty clear. Historical narrative for the gospel books and the acts. Epistolary or didactic for the letters. Apocalyptic for revelation. We don't have poetry in the New Testament. Okay, so, so you mentioned that the Jehovah's Witnesses also point out that the New Testament refers to Jesus as the firstborn, meaning that he must have had a beginning and be created. Is that valid? Well, let's look at that, because this is an issue, and it's not just when you deal with Jehovah's Witnesses, that do trouble some Christians. Why is Jesus called the firstborn? Does that not somehow indicate that he has a beginning at some point in time, in which case he couldn't be God? Well, let's look at it then. There are two passages in the Bible, in the New Testament, where Jesus is referred to as firstborn. One of them is in Revelation 1, 4 to 5, where we read this. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, 
Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. That's one of them. The other is in Colossians 1.18, where we read, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, Colossians 1.18. So these are the two passages where you do see that. The question is, what does this word, firstborn, prototakos, what does it actually mean? Because that is the word that's, that appears in, in those passages. So what you do to discover it is look at how this word is used in the Bible. We look at the Old Testament. We see the word is used in Genesis 21 times, the Hebrew equivalent. And it's always in reference, indeed, to first in a physical birth order. If, if we're not sure what prototokos means so that we have to go look it up in the Old Testament, isn't it a, a circular argument to already say that it's a, an equivalent in the Hebrew? I thought that's what we're trying to find out. Well, wherever you see the Septuagint, which is the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, in these passages, that's the word you'll see, is prototaka. So it, it seems a legitimate reason. But let's let's go with this and see where it leads us. Okay, Because we're not simply going to say the Old Testament does this, therefore New Testament is not a problem. If we can see what the Old Testament is doing, we would also have to see if the New Testament is doing the same thing. But it is good to point that out. In Exodus, firstborn is used 23 times in reference to physical birth order. But you see in other several passages where you see what looks like a different meaning. In Exodus 4, 22 to 23, God is commissioning Moses and he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So God here is referring to an entire nation as his son and specifically as his first. But Israel is not, never had a human birth, never came out of a birth canal. And yet he's being referred here to here as firstborn. What, what about coming out from Abraham? Because it was promised to him that he'd have so many descendants. But yes, yes, who was Abraham's firstborn son? Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. But please join us for the next part. Same time and same place. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you. Please feel free to share any questions or comments you may have. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, and YouTube. Simply search Truth In My Days as one word. Again, Truth In My Days as one word, no spaces in between. And you can connect with us. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. 